says, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. That is, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be first to rise from the dead, and will proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles." Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things or so, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Therefore, Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both altogether and most all as I am, except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice, and those who sat with him. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And before I pray, can we turn off the air conditioning before people leave church early? Thank you. Father, we thank you for the word of God and for your spirit. And how he speaks to us as we open the scriptures together. Lord, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd give us just an ear to hear what your spirit is saying to this part of your church this morning through this portion of your word. Lord, meet us in a personal way that we might hear your voice saying to us what it is that you know we need to hear from this text that you have given to us in your word. Prepare us and speak to us now by your spirit's ministry And we thank you in advance expectantly for doing such in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, it's important sometimes to ask ourselves that we are not only receptive to God, but that we're also responsive to God. And those are really two different things. It's good to be receptive, but it's more important to then be responsive to God. And being responsive to God, how we respond to God, how we respond to God's word, and even how we respond towards other people is a very important thing. And that's really, honestly, a good bit of what we see really represented in our text this morning. We see Paul speaking about God, speaking the word of God, and then we see this kind of differentiating response that different people are having. Paul himself even indicates to us how he himself was responsive in an obedient way rather than being disobedient to what God was saying to him. Remember the backdrop of our section right now. Paul's standing before many dignitaries, King Agrippa, 
Bernice, Festus, a group of prominent people in that area. And he's been examined for accusations that have been made against him. And they're really just nothing else, trying to find some things to write down as charges before they send Paul to Caesar. Because remember, Paul had now appealed his case to Caesar. And so they have to have some things to write about him before they send him to Caesar. And remember, Paul, last time we saw, gave testimony of his spiritual conversion, what he was like before meeting Jesus, and then what happened when Jesus powerfully revealed himself to Paul in a personal way and resulted in Paul then, remember, just surrendering himself under the Lord Jesus, recognizing who Jesus was, calling him Lord, and no doubt that day he was converted and transformed. And not only did it change Paul's life personally to becoming a follower of Jesus, but Paul also told us that he received a ministry from Jesus. That is something to do. If you look back with me in verses 16 through 18, Paul said that Jesus said to him, Paul, rise and stand on your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you've seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. I'll deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul informs them that he'd received this instruction of what he was to do in serving the Lord. And after recounting that encounter with Jesus and this experience he had where he received a ministry that he was supposed to carry out, he now shares to us in his next breath how he responded to that. You see what he says? Look with me in verse 19. He says, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. So Paul affirms that his response to this heavenly revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ that he received on the Damascus road was to obey what was told him. Again, this vision, if you would, or revelation that Paul received, it came directly from heaven's throne itself. The heavens, if you would, shine down with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ upon Paul that day. And he knew as he heard this voice and was encountering this brilliant light brighter than the noonday sun, that this was a divine experience. This was a word coming from the Lord of heaven with divine authority. It was a message of instruction from the throne of God. And that made it incredibly serious and incredibly important. And understanding, Paul did, where this came from, he did not neglect, therefore, what he was instructed to do. That's why Paul says in verse 19, in light of this, he says, look, I was not disobedient, king, he says, to the heavenly vision. Now, this to me indicates Paul understood that sometimes we can have things shown to us by the Lord, We can have the Lord speak something to us or instruct us to do something, and we hear what he tells us to do, yet then be negligent to actually be responsive in carrying out what the Lord told us to do. Paul understood that's possible. That's why he says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Paul realized that you can at times be disobedient to what may come as a word from the Lord or an instruction that God may give to us regarding our life. 
We can be negligent to what the Lord tells us to do and disobey for various reasons. But this was not the case with Paul. Paul's emphasizing here that he was persuaded enough within when he heard this to act upon it and to actually carry out what he knew God said to him, to put into practice what he was told to do by the Lord in a responsive way. He submitted himself to the authority of what was spoken to him from heaven. And he embraced it in a personal way as the Lord of heaven telling him what to do and put it into practice. And I think it's a good reminder for us this morning in all of our lives to examine our own hearts. Ask yourself, what has the Lord addressed in your life recently? What's the Lord revealed to you maybe recently for your life in a personal way? What has Jesus spoken to you? What has Jesus shown you? What's he said to you? Maybe he's asked you to do something and to respond in some way, and he's spoken to you. The bigger question is, what are you doing in response to that? Maybe you're receptive and you heard the word of the Lord. Maybe you're receptive and you know what the Lord has shown you, and you can acknowledge that and recognize that. But what are you doing in response now? Are you being obedient to it and carrying it out and putting it into practice? Or are you perhaps for some reason being negligent and therefore disobedient and not carrying it out and putting it into practice. And there can be lots of different reasons why sometimes we're negligent and disobedient to what the Lord shows us or tells us to do. Sometimes it's fear and a lack of faith. Sometimes it's just our own selfishness. Sometimes it's just laziness, irresponsibility. I mean, there are a lot of reasons for excuses, but none of the excuses really stand at the end of the day. If he is Lord then we are to submit to his authority. We're to follow whatever he says to us. We're to obey whatever he shows us or instructs us to do. And a proper response is always immediately putting into practice whatever the Lord tells us to do. And Paul describes how he was therefore obedient to this heavenly vision going on in verse 20. He says, but I declared first, he says, to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and all throughout the region of Judea and to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. So Paul began, notice, declaring, as soon as he received this instruction from Jesus, which we saw in verses 16 and 18, Paul began declaring everywhere the spiritual truths that he had now come to know from the Lord calling upon people to now respond properly to God themselves, even as he had just responded properly to God as well when he had this experience on the Damascus Road, that people should repent from their wrong ways, that they should turn to God in a personal encounter instead and show by outward works their sincere change. Now, we'll discuss that more in a minute, but first of all, if you would take note with me in verse 20, notice the pattern of Paul's obedient response. Paul's telling us how he was not disobedient to the vision or instruction for heaven, but obedient. Notice the pattern of Paul's obedient response in verse 20. He says, I declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles. And let me ask you a question this morning. Do you remember geographically where Paul was located when he was converted and received his commission from Jesus? Damascus. 
Now, in light of that, look with me again in verse 20. Where did Paul begin his obedient response? Where did he get started? He says right there, verse 20, I declared first to those in Damascus and then next in the epicenter of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. But what I want you to take note of is Paul's obedience was in light of where he was right at the current time, and he began right where he was at, right where he was at. He says, I began obeying what Jesus told me to do first, right where I was in Damascus. I didn't wait to go all the way back to Israel first. Right there where I was, I just started obeying where I was at at the current time. I got started right away, blooming right where I was planted, And after he began there in Damascus, then to Jerusalem, he then began to spread outward throughout Judea and then ultimately to the far-reaching areas of the Roman Empire to all of the Gentile world, which we studied in the book of Acts together. He moved further outward, kind of like a ripple effect, if you would. And I think this is really great illustration of wisdom for practical obedience, that when the Lord instructs us to do something, start right where you are at. Too often, I think that's why we sometimes never get started obeying the Lord, because we look at this maybe big, overwhelming thing and we think, I just how am I going to do that? And and how will I ultimately get to that point? And we surmise what it's going to take, whether it's something the Lord's asking us to do to serve him in some way, or maybe it's you know, turning from some wrong lifestyle or pattern of sin that's really become entrenched. And we look and we just think, I just can't envision how ultimately I could get to that spot or that could come to pass. Well, you know, what do we say? How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, right? An elephant's huge. So how do you eat an elephant? I got a better way. Probably right at his kneecap because that's about where my mouth would be. <laughs> right where you're at. Take the first bite. But, but oftentimes we overlook this reality and we overthink things and comp, you know, kind of complicate things. Work with the opportunity that's afforded to you. If the Lord tells you to do something, just start right where you're at in your Damascus, right where the Lord's got you right now in the place where he has you in the family that you're in among the friend group that you have in the job that you're in in the community where the Lord has you just start right where you're at. Get started and just start doing what he's told you to do. Don't find excuses why you will do something then or when we get to or eventually when i'm at just start right where you are that's how obedience begins and then it ripples outward obedience is doing what's right beginning right where you're at and then once you're doing it faithfully right where you're at then you can start moving outward then you start moving further but don't neglect just getting started right where you are a beautiful pattern of paul's obedience there And notice what Paul particularly was pleading with the people regarding as Jesus told him to do. He says, I began declaring to people, verse 20, that he says, they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting of repentance. Now, again, what did Jesus say he was sending Paul out as a witness to do? Well, again, verse 18, what would Jesus's instruction? Paul, I'm sending you to open people's eyes in order to turn them turn them that is turn away from darkness to light to turn from the power of satan to god that they might receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified in me so in light of that what did paul tell people 
Well, there it is in verse 20. He told people, first and foremost, that they should repent, that they should repent. And the word repent in its original language most clearly means a change of mind that produces a change of behavior. A change of mind that results in a change of the way that you're living. It's not just acknowledging you're wrong, but continuing to go down the same highway. That's a good start, acknowledging you're wrong, but repentance is turning around. It describes a 180-degree opposite direction focus where you say, I am going south, and south is wrong. I need to turn around and go north. And I am so convinced that going south is wrong, I'm going to change. I'm going to go north now. I'm going to go the opposite direction. So it's a change of mind that leads to a change in your way of living. It's admitting heading your wrong direction and deciding to then go a different way. So he says that people should repent. Then he next says... And as they repent, as they turn away from sin and self-serving and selfish and wrong ways and, and Satan's will for their life, they should then turn away from that and turn what? Turn to God. That is, turn away from sinful living, turn away from just religious ritual, turn away from wrong thinking, and turn instead to the person of God himself to believe and obey what God's word says and what God's will is. Turn towards experiencing God in a personal way. And sometimes even those who are very religious need to do that. They need to turn away from religious routine and actually turn to God. And knowing God in a personal way and living for God and walking with God and listening to what God's saying instead of just going through motions of empty religious routine. And then thirdly, Paul says in verse 20 as well, that as they repent and turn to God, they should do works befitting repentance that is works that are matching with repentance works that line up with what repentance or true change is other translations render this section performing deeds consistent with repentance that is a desire to change another translation to do works giving evidence of repentance that is to do things to prove they had changed that is the fruit measurable fruit of a changed heart. And, and this is very important. Please hear me this morning. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Repentance is not something that's talked about. It's something that we do. It's a decision and an action. It's not a proclamation. Do you know how many times I have, probably you have, and people I've certainly talked to, and maybe you have as well, say they're going to repent? say they want to change, they acknowledge what they're doing is wrong or it's sinful, and they confess and acknowledge that, but repentance is not something that's talked about. It looks like something. It demonstrates itself. You can observe it and verify it. There's measurable fruit to validate the proof that it's really happening at the root. So if there's change at the root, then ultimately the fruit will be demonstrated of that outwardly. And this is true of spiritual, biblical repentance. Trees always produce fruit after their kind, right? If you see a tree and it has apples on it, what kind of tree is that, class? That's an apple tree, right? Are you sure it's not an orange tree? Yes, it's an apple tree. 
because the DNA inside of that tree and the sap that's flowing through the branches is producing apples, revealing that it is indeed an apple tree at the root. Fruit indicates or proves the inner DNA of a tree. Same is true spiritually, the Bible tells us, that we should do works that line up with repentance if it's happening. John calling people to turn from their wrong ways in the days of following Jesus said to the people, bear fruits worthy of of repentance that is demonstrate repentance don't just declare that you want to repent matthew 7 jesus said this in a similar way jesus said you can identify them by their fruit that is by the way that they act can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles a good tree produces good fruit a bad tree produces bad fruit a good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit yes You can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions, Jesus said. Saying that in regards to a person's conversion of their soul, whether it's real or not, Jesus says this. Listen, he says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, profession, profession, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's sobering. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On Judgment Day, many, I wish Jesus would have said a few, on Judgment Day, many will say to me, to Jesus, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name, perform miracles in your name. In other words, Lord, we, we did all kinds of really religious stuff. We even served in ministry. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. That's sobering. Again, what the Bible is emphasizing to us is when a person has truly turned to the Lord, repented of their sin and received Jesus Christ, when that's truly happened inwardly and they've experienced a conversion, a change of their heart, there will be measurable fruit that they've genuinely become a converted spiritual follower of Jesus Christ. There'll be evidence of that. They'll be living for the Lord. There'll be changing, there'll be gradual change and evident fruit that begins to demonstrate itself that they are indeed a follower of Christ. Without any fruit, there is no guarantee that spiritual things really took root in a life. This is important. And for all of us who are Christians, look, at times we need to repent as well. We need to change on occasion. And we need to recognize that when a believer is living in error, if they claim they want to repent, that should be seen. It should be observable, something that demonstrates it. The Bible says godly sorrow produces repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, in light of that, says, For observe this very thing, the godly sorrow produced in you such earnestness, such concern to clear yourselves, such zeal and alarm, such a readiness to punish evil and end wrong. You show that you've done everything necessary to make things right. See how it's describing evidence of action. You do what's necessary to make things right. I want to change, man. Well, then do what's necessary to make things right. Don't tell me you want to change. Demonstrate you want to change. This is what biblical repentance is. So important that we understand doctrinally what repentance truly is. So he calls the people, repent, turn to God, do works befitting of repentance. He then goes on, verse 21, to say, for these reasons, and obviously so, Paul says, 
the Jews seized me. They didn't like when I was saying this in the temple and they tried to kill me. So because Paul boldly spoke of this need of the religious community of the Jews to change and to leave religious ritual and turn to a relationship with the living God through his son, Jesus Christ, this caused great offense to their pride because they had a strong adherence to their religious upbringing. And that's tough sometimes when you got a strong adherence to a religious way of life for somebody to say, I know you're very religious. I know you have a strong adherence to this way of religiosity, but that's not going to get you to heaven. You have to turn to God through his son, Jesus Christ. And, and, and that's difficult because it offends the pride of man. And this voice of truth was stinging in the heart of the religious Jewish people. And so Paul says, that's the reason why they seized me, he says. And they even tried to kill me. They were so upset because it offended their pride within. And sadly, sometimes people's response toward those who try and inform them of what is true is just like what Paul's describing here. They get very angry. And they even want to mistreat someone who is trying to just tell them what's true. Sound familiar, perhaps, in your own life? You try and tell someone what's true and they get angry. They may even mistreat you because they don't like what you're telling them in their response. Well, what did Paul do when he was faced with this mistreatment and difficulty of trying to do what was right and obey Jesus as he's mistreated by people? Well, look at verse 22. He says, therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand. So Paul says, look, it got difficult obeying the Lord. Satan was using unconverted people to try and stop Paul's faithfulness to the Lord, to trip him up spiritually, to hold him back from doing what was right. And question, how did Paul stay strong? Well, look what it says in verse 22 there. It tells us Paul was able to stand, that is to remain faithful, to continue to do what was right and hold his ground without giving up, not by resorting to his own strength. It wasn't his great determination. It wasn't his human ability under the hardship and the weight of the pressures. Paul says, I was able to remain faithful and hold my ground and not give up and stand because, what does verse 22 say? Because he says, I obtained help from God. Because I obtained help from God, that's how I stood strong. That was how I continued to carry on when it was hard. You know, the language is interesting where Paul says, I obtained help. The language there speaks of experiencing something that cannot be achieved on your own and therefore having to receive assistance from another to carry that out. So the idea is recognizing I cannot do this project. I cannot handle this situation. I cannot carry this out to completion or not falter or not give up in my own ability, but I am able to do it if someone stronger can assist me to carry this out. And this is what Paul's describing here, how God helped Paul during his pressures and hardships beyond his natural ability. God supplied him help and assistance to accomplish what he could not. What Paul could not do, remain faithful, God helped him to do. What Paul did not have the strength to do to carry on when it was hard, 
Jesus gave him supernatural assistance to do that. Paul knew the only reason he's trying to say that I'm standing today is because God's helping me. If not, he said, I'd be a crumbled mess by now. Only because God is helping me and I've obtained his help in a powerful way am I standing. And you know, this morning, perhaps you and your life can reflect back on maybe a very difficult time in your life when you were experiencing very hard times, difficulties, pressures, hardships, and something, the weight of it was crushing down upon you. And you know that the only reason why you were able to stand and hold up under that was because of the help of God. That were it not for the help of God that upheld you, sustained you, enabled you and empowered you, you would have crumbled under the load. And only by the help of God alone were you able to stand and remain faithful under the weight by God's help. And, you know, the right response, if that's the case, is to always give the glory to God for that and to be thankful and recognize the only reason why I'm still standing is because God stood with me and I obtained his help in that time when it was so hard to do that. And perhaps even currently this morning you're here and you're facing a very difficult time. Maybe you're dealing with something very hard and challenging like Paul, mistreatment or just a real difficult season, a real heavy trial that you're under that wants to just trip you up and knock you back and keep you from carrying on. Can I encourage you to remember this morning, God is not a God of partiality. He loves everybody equally. In the same way he helped Paul the apostle, he will help you in whatever matter you're dealing with. In whatever current situation that you're navigating, he is willing to fully help you in whatever your situation is. Call upon God in faith and he will help you personally. You'll obtain the help of almighty God. Look, the Bible does not teach, folks, that God helps those who help themselves. Right? We hear that. God helps those who help themselves. First of all, that's not in the Bible. Second of all, that's a statement for people we're trying to encourage who are lazy and don't want to work. That's what that is. Let's be honest. God helps those who help themselves. You got to start doing something, man, then God will help you. Maybe it's better to say you need to stop being lazy and get a job. You need to work harder. The Bible teaches that God doesn't help those who help themselves. The Bible teaches that God helps the helpless. That is people who are completely unable in their own strength to do what they know God asks them to do sometimes. And they realize, God, I am a helpless case unless you help me by your power. Unless you give me the power to do what you want me to do, God, I'm helpless and hopeless. But I'm humble enough, God, to recognize I need to receive your help. And this morning, despite what you're going through, know you can obtain help from God. God will help you. He will give you the power to do what you can't and to remain faithful till he brings you through whatever it is. And despite Paul's difficulties that he endured through God's help, he kept going forward. He says, I obtained help from God. Verse 22, therefore, to this day, I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So Paul kept speaking to people what? Simply what the scriptures declared were true. Paul says, I wasn't coming up with cute novel ideas, trying to just be the most interesting next preacher on the circuit. (laughs) 
Paul says, all I was honestly doing was just telling people what the Old Testament prophets, he said, and Moses already declared such things would come to pass. And he says, I was just giving further light and clarity that Jesus fulfilled what the Old Testament prophets and what Moses said would come to pass, that Jesus of Nazareth completed those things. Paul was saying, I had a biblical basis and the content to what I was saying, and it was rooted in simply what the Bible taught about Jesus and the Messiah, what he would do and who he would be when he came. And what did the Bible say about the Messiah? We might say the Christ, one's Hebrew, one's Greek, this deliverer God that would send, the Christ. Well, Paul says, first of all, verse 23, the Old Testament predicted that the Christ would suffer. That is that he would be punished for our sins, that he would come as a man. Isaiah 7 predicted he would be miraculously born of a virgin, and Jesus of Nazareth was. Micah chapter 5 said the Christ or Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and that's where Jesus of Nazareth was born. The Old Testament said he would be of the family line of David, and that's the family line through which Jesus came. And of course, the fact that he would, after he ministered, then be mistreated and rejected and suffer. Isaiah 53, the entirety of the chapter, says of the Christ that he would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So again, Isaiah 53, just one of many, but probably one of the most explicit passages in the Old Testament that predicted that when the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior that God was sending would come, that he would suffer, that as a man, he would suffer in his humanity to make atonement for the sins of all the human race, that God would put the punishment of the sin of the world upon this one individual who was the Christ and the Savior. The Bible also predicted, Paul said, that the Christ, when he came, would be the first, verse 23, to rise from the dead. Now, when it says the first to rise from the dead, critical thinking, wait a minute, there are people who rose back from the dead in the Old Testament before Jesus did. What does that mean? Well, what it indicates is that the Christ, the Messiah, would be the first to rise from the dead to never die again in an eternal, glorified, heavenly body See, people came back from the dead in the Old Testament a few times miraculously, but guess what they did? They died again. That doesn't sound fun. I don't want to do it once, let alone to have to do it twice. So when it says Jesus is the first to rise from the dead, that is the first to rise from the realm of the dead to never die again forever and ever and ever to have a resurrected, glorified, spiritual, eternal body and to continue to live in that existence. And Psalm chapter 16, verse 9 and 10, speak of how the Messiah's body would not see corruption in the grave, that Jesus would come and rise from the dead to never experience death again is exactly what he did. After he came back, after his resurrection on the backside of the crucifixion, he appeared after death in that new, glorified, tangible, eternal body. He wasn't a spirit. He had a physical resurrected body, a new heavenly body that would never experience the death process again. And he was first to resurrect in this manner to receive an incorruptible body as a man so that he might offer to all of mankind 
now this exact same experience through what he can provide as the one who conquered sin and death completely as we receive his life. Philippians 3 says it this way, our citizenship is in heaven and we wait eagerly for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will take our weak and mortal bodies and change and transform them into glorious bodies like his own. See, Jesus was the first to rise from the dead to never die again so that he can offer to you and I, anyone who receives his life, the opportunity to die physically, but never afterwards to ever experience that because though we die, we live and we live eternally in a resurrected, eternal spiritual body. And Jesus offered this to us. And Paul is saying he he simply fulfilled, again, what the Old Testament said. And he says not only that, but also that the Christ, when he came, would proclaim light to the Jewish people. And to the Gentiles, that is according to the predictions of Scripture, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, filling over 300 prophecies from the Old Testament, as well did this very thing. He called upon people to turn from light to darkness. Do you remember Jesus' statement in John chapter 8? He said of himself, what? Exclusively, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus specifically did, again, what the Old Testament said. He proclaimed light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And the way he proclaimed it was to say, I am the source of light that's come into this world. And so whoever follows me will no longer walk in spiritual darkness, but have the light of life of what it truly means to know God and to experience him. Well, Paul's saying, in essence, look, all I'm declaring to you is what the Bible says and the evidence that the life of Jesus of Nazareth was credible. It was reliable historically, prophetically. And so therefore, what does that mean? Well, because of the credibility of Jesus's life, it should encourage response to him as savior for our sin and as Lord over our life because of the historical accuracy and the fulfillment of so many prophecies. Paul goes on, verse 24, says, now, as he made thus his defense, Festus then said to Paul, as he says these things with a loud voice, he interrupts him. Now, Paul, you are beside yourself. You're losing your marbles, Paul. Much learning is driving you mad. Now, that's the response of a man, folks, that's hard-hearted, that doesn't want to hear the truth and knows his own reasoning is defeated. So his best answer is, you're just a fanatic. Okay, all this Bible stuff, too much Bible study, too many times a week, you're just losing your mind with all this Bible stuff. That's the response, the defense mechanism of a man who realizes I am undone and I'm out of options. So I'm just going to tell you you're a crazy spiritual fanatic. Well, Paul hearing this says, verse 25, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and reason. Paul indicates I've never thought clearer in my life, Festus. I'm thinking more clearly now than ever. See, the issue was Festus was undone when he heard Paul speak truth so reasonably. And Paul recognizes this. And Paul says, that's what's going on here. He says, I simply conveyed to you words of truth. And that's what people need to hear. Truth. They need to hear the truth. You know, Trish and I were just counseling with someone recently the other night. And I said to them at a certain point in the conversation I just said, raised my hand, and I said, "Um, do you want me to validate your feelings, or do you want me to tell you the truth? 
People sometimes just need to hear the truth. And Paul said, look, this may not line up with your feelings, but I'm just trying to give you words of truth and reason. And Paul was speaking to people what was true in a loving way, but because he loved them, he was telling them the truth. And he was communicating, notice, with reason. I like that. Words of truth and reason. In other words, Paul was saying, look, I was trying to be reasonable. I was giving them reasonable explanation in regards to what he was saying. And, you know, if you truly love someone, we'll we'll be reasonable when you speak to them. You don't have to drop the hammer just because you're telling the truth. Help them reason things out. Help them think through things. I'm telling you the truth, but let's reason this out together. Think about this and, and help them to see and have valid reason to want to understand why they need the Lord or maybe why they need to change and so forth. Well, Paul returns to address Agrippa, I think now, sensing his heart is the most receptive. Because look what he says, verse 26. It says, for the king before whom I also speak freely knows, Paul says, these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. So take notice, Paul indicates what had happened with this man, Jesus of Nazareth, historically was no secret in Israel. Paul said, look, this didn't happen in a corner, not some hidden off place where only a few people in one little community in Israel knew about it. Paul said, this is widespread throughout all the nation of Israel and the surrounding regions. What happened with this man, Jesus of Nazareth? Everyone's well acquainted with it. And that was true in that day. And Paul knew there was no way of dismissing what happened. And he was convinced that it had the king's attention And that King Agrippa was really considering these things because he couldn't dismiss what he knew. So Paul, verse 27, in light of that, probes a little further. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And then before he can answer, I know that you believe. You can tell Paul's a little passionate there. Paul asks the question, he says, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe with the word of God. And then Paul, being so excited himself, almost in his own enthusiasm, He answers for the king without even giving him a chance to. Now, I think really what Paul is doing here is he senses the Holy Spirit's moving powerfully on the king's heart, and he knew Agrippa was being convicted by the Spirit of God. You almost talk to somebody sometimes, maybe periodically, and you can almost sense, you can almost like dial in that that the Spirit of God is really working in their heart when you're speaking to them. And I think Paul could really sense that the Spirit was moving powerfully on the king's heart, that he's being compelled to respond. And Paul here is kind of saying, look, I know that you believe it. You know it's true. You know that what I'm saying is true. So he's in essence saying, what's holding you back? What's keeping you from responding to God? You know what he's telling you. God's speaking to you. Don't delay, he's saying. Now keep in mind, Agrippa, however, standing in an auditorium with Bernice and Festus and all these other important people, and he's got to weigh out the pressure of saving face or doing what God's telling him to do, and sometimes that's hard in our humanity. What's it going to look like if he humbles himself before the Lord in front of all these other people he's trying to keep an image in front of? Well, look at verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Now, I appreciate the honesty of Agrippa there. He's directly honest that indeed he's wrestling with what seems to be true, but he's not willing to surrender yet. I mean, do you see that statement again there in verse 28? Listen to that statement. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost. 
the idea there is I'm feeling drawn. I know this is true. I'm wrestling in my heart, but I don't know if I want to submit yet. I want to exercise my will and hold off longer still. Now, let me just say, that's probably got to be to me one of the saddest statements in the New Testament right there. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Somebody who almost makes a decision to embrace Jesus' invitation to be a follower. Someone who almost accepts forgiveness of sins. Someone who almost chooses to receive the gift of eternal life, but yet holds back in resistance, delaying from doing it because they still want to live a self-serving life or because King Agrippa didn't want to let go of his relationship with Bernice or whatever the reasons were. Other translations render that, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian so easily, so quickly? It's almost as if he's trying to blow this smokescreen. Look, that's a major decision there, Paul. You're talking about giving my life over to someone else, letting somebody else take control of my life. And and I don't know, I really need to think about that and take my time to which reason to me again might say, why? Why do you need to wait? If you're falling out of an airplane and somebody says, you want a parachute? I don't know. Let me think about that for a few thousand more feet. Are you going to hit the ground and say, I almost took the parachute? I mean, what a sad thing. Delaying to respond to Jesus calling someone to be saved just hardens the heart of the person who's delaying and rejecting longer. We need to pray for people. And if you're here this morning, look, God forbid that that would be your epitaph. I almost became a Christian. Almost. What a sad, sad thing. All throughout history, others have responded the same way. For whatever the reasonings and the excuses, they hold out and they almost become a follower of Christ and forsake their own spiritual and eternal welfare. Well, Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both altogether such as I am except for these chains. So Paul makes one more gracious appeal, if you would, to King Agrippa and to all those who are there hearing God's truth. He says there in verse uh, 29 there, he says, not only you, King Agrippa, but everybody here, except for these chains of imprisonment, except for that. He says, I wish that all of you would become just as I am. And what's Paul referring to? Converted. Someone who just like them in that moment, who he was beseeching and crying out to and trying to convince that they need Christ, Paul saying, look, I wish you'd become as I am. I was someone just like you who once lived in darkness, once lived caught up in religious routine and missing a relationship with God. I was one just like you at one time who was selfishly wanting to be in control of my own life. But finally, I saw the light. And I submitted myself to the Lord. And I humbled myself and I let Jesus have control over my life. And he changed my entire life, Paul says. And he says, I just want you to experience what I've experienced. I love Paul's heart there. He just wants people to become a follower of Christ just as he had become. What a strong desire to see people respond to the Lord. And it's convicting. How strong is my desire to want to see people become a follower of the Lord like I've become by the grace of God, a follower of the Lord? God, help us to have a heart like Paul's, to, to long to see people become followers of Christ. 
Verse 30 says, And when he had said these things, the king then stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and all who sat with him. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of chains. So not wanting to deal with the spiritual wrestling. Understand, that's what's going on inside. He is wrestling with conviction in his heart, not wanting to deal with it. What does he do there, verse 30? He takes an abrupt escape route. It says that he stood up and he went aside and had a conversation with the other dignitaries for a few minutes. What you have going on there simply, folks, is this, is that's an action of response to shut down the spiritual conversation because I don't want to talk about that anymore. This is making me uncomfortable. So he abruptly gets up to indicate, I'm done talking about this. I want to dismiss it. Let's not talk about this anymore. And in a practical way, he wants to end the talk in his hard-heartedness. And he finds the escape path. And sometimes that is a response of people. They do whatever it takes to find the escape route, right? They just, let's put an end to this conversation because this is getting difficult. This is really weighing on me and convicting me. And and the group goes aside and they again discuss, this man's doing nothing deserving of death or chains. They realize his innocence. Look how it concludes verse 32. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if He had not appealed to Caesar. So because Paul had appealed to Caesar, the wheels of Roman justice are now turning and he must now go to the capital city of Rome and appear before the emperor. Now, what's interesting to me is from their perspective, take notice verse 32, from their perspective, they saw Paul as not being free. You see what they say there? This man might have been set free. Now, to me, that's interesting. From their perspective, Paul's not free. From heaven's perspective, Paul's the only one that is completely free among the whole group standing there. Because you see, true freedom is found when a person responds and turns to the Lord. Because if the Son sets you free, then you're free indeed. You're free from the power of sin controlling your life. You're free from guilt and shame berating your conscience you're free from satan controlling your life in a way you don't even realize see the truth of the matter was the rest of those present that day they were actually all the ones who were prisoners they were still prisoners to the condition of their own soul but yet they could be set free but they had to appeal to the throne of god they had to appeal to the throne of god and call upon the name of the lord to be saved The option was available to them. You know, when it comes to hearing the voice of the Lord, folks, response is very, very important. Not just receptivity, response. And response is our responsibility and our part. The way we respond is also important because that's what determines everything. And that's why the Bible says to us today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Respond. What's God saying to you? Respond to the Lord if you're hearing his voice. Let's stand together.